Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm joined today by my friend Patrick Awua, who's the founder and president of Oshesi University in Ghana. Patrick is a native Ghanaian who left his successful career at Microsoft to return to Ghana and start Oshesi. He recently published a chapter in a book entitled Practicing Development, Upending Assumptions for Positive Change. His chapter is called Courage is the Cornerstone of Progress and stresses the importance of homegrown ethical leadership locally-led innovation and entrepreneurship as keys to lasting progress in Africa. Patrick, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Patrick, the title of this book is Practicing Development, but Ashesi University in Ghana, on which I'm really proud to be on the Ashesi University Foundation Board. The Ashesi University in Ghana isn't an economic development project per se. It's a university. Why did the editors of a book about economic development ask you to submit a chapter about Ashesi? Actually, I'm not surprised that they asked me uh, because even though education does not seem or university does not seem directly as a development project, in fact, it is. If you look around the world um, and the developing countries, we talk a lot about, you know, exploiting our natural resources. We talk a lot about solving specific problems, you know, whether it's healthcare or infrastructure or, you know, setting up the right governance systems in our countries, all of those things depend on another resource, another crucial natural resource, which is human capital. And the development of that human capital is essential to the economic development project. And so I see a university as you know, an institution that is helping develop that human capital that is going to then serve many other aspects of development in the developing world. I've been so taken with your model, Patrick, and I think anyone that's been out to the Ashesi campus and seen what you're doing feels the same way. One of the things that I think about when I think about Africa is the youth employment challenge. There's going to be more Africans than Chinese and Indians together in 30 years. So there's an enormous youth bulge, there's an enormous growing population. Now, that's an enormous opportunity if you can create a demographic dividend, which means investing in your people and having deep investments in human capital, the kind of human capital that Ashesi makes. So how should we be thinking about this challenge of youth employment? You must think about this every day in your job as a founder and president of Ashesi. I do. So on the one hand, this demographic wave that is coming in Africa is a huge opportunity if we have you know, the right environment and the right opportunities for people to, to have jobs and to make a contribution to, the, to our economies. On the other hand, if we don't have those kinds of opportunities, then this huge cohort that is coming is going to become a source of mass emigration and potentially of conflict as there is increased competition for limited resources. We prefer to see it as an opportunity, and the way to really capitalize on that opportunity is to educate people at a very high level who are going to be, you know, the the leaders who will create the right enabling environment, and also 
be an institution that is developing a capable workforce. Now, all of this cannot be done by one institution, right? A chassis is not going to solve that problem alone. The problem is going to be solved by all the government institutions that are engaged in education, as well as the private institutions that are engaged in education. And so, you know, I, I see the Ashesi project as being an exemplar for other institutions of higher learning um, and actually other institutions of education generally to follow. So if I want to start a business in Africa or want to start in the specific case of Ghana, it can be hard. How does Ashesi contribute to the challenge of enabling and creating the next generation of entrepreneurs in Africa? So there are a number of things that we've done. I mean, the first and obvious one is that we've crafted a curriculum that is designed to nurture courage among our students, to give them the skills to look at problems differently, take those problems apart, um, and also to craft solutions to those problems. So, so the, the process of design thinking and ideation and iteration of, of solutions is built into our curriculum for all students, regardless of major. The other thing that we're, do, we're also doing, though, is that we are adding support for those students who want to, to start businesses. We have an incubator that students can base their, their businesses in. We also have some funding to provide proof of concept grants, especially grants that will enable them to prototype their ideas and iterate through coming up with better solutions. Today, about 10% of our alumni are running businesses of their own. The others who are not running businesses of their own have not started businesses. They're also being entrepreneuring wherever they are. But we, we want to see that the number of startups grow so that about 20% of our alumni are starting businesses. And so this is something that we're, we're pushing very hard on our campus today. I just think it's an enormous opportunity and enormous challenge. I've seen statistics in, I think, the Gallup World Poll that says that something like more than 30% of young people under the age of 25 in Africa plan to start a business within a very short period of time. The entrepreneurship in the United States and other some wealthier countries is seen as kind of a lifestyle choice. I think in many parts of the world and, and in some parts of Africa, it's not so much necessarily a lifestyle choice so much as a necessity. So I think it's an important pathway for employment all over the world in the United States and elsewhere, but also very much so in Africa. That's exactly right. And I think that the, the kinds of businesses that people start out of necessity just to survive tend to be subsistence level, sort of very small micro businesses. What we also need is businesses that, that are scalable, that are going to grow, that are going to create jobs for more people and create opportunities for more people. So, you know, one of the things I was struck with when I visited the Ashesi campus last year was the different sorts of science and technology activities that you have on campus. Can you give me an example of homegrown African innovation that you admire? Because I, I think it's certainly something that you're encouraging Ashesi students to think about. Right. I, I mean, a couple of examples come to mind. The first one I'd like to talk about is you know, we have a situation in Ghana where there are artisanal miners who are, you know, doing small scale mining and they're using mercury and other toxins in trying to identify and extract gold out of ore. 
And we had a group of students and a faculty member work on a project where they're, they're using a bioengineered organism to do the same function um, that will do it in a more environmentally safe way. Now, this is an example that I like to use because it is solving a particular problem in our country that scientists that does bioengineering in Europe might not have that problem as a pressing thing and would therefore not do this project, right? Another example is a student who, for her capstone project, developed a way to use plastics to help in road construction. So on the one hand, we have a situation where roads are not as strong as they should be. On the other hand, we have this plastic waste problem that needs to be solved. And so taking plastic waste and using it as a resource to address an, an issue um, in our environment is it's exactly the kind of thing that we want our students and our faculty to be doing. It's great. How many graduates do we have now at Ashesi? We have over 1,400 uh, graduates at the moment. You know, one of the things you talk about in the chapter is your request to look for islands of excellence and help them to spread. What do you mean by that? I'm, I've, my first thought is that there, there are more than 1,000 islands of excellence who are Ashesi grads. So I'm thinking that they may be instigators of these islands of excellence. What do you mean by that? By that, I mean that we need other institutions that are operating at a very high level, that are executing with excellence, that are focusing on you know, fundamental things that we need addressed, like ethical leadership, innovation, scientific research, and who are working meaningfully to help give governments a roadmap for development from the perspective of people who live and work in Africa. And more generally, I think if you think about, you know, any industry in any, in any economy um, or any society, we all often tend to operate with a particular performance horizon in mind. And most institutions will sort of be operating with that, within that performance horizon until somebody or some organization pushes the boundary significantly. And then suddenly, everybody also steps up their game. And so these exemplars are extremely important because they are the ones that sort of keep pushing the performance horizon higher uh, for other institutions to follow. Is it fair to say that Ashesi is one of those islands of excellence? I think it is. Yeah, we think it is. But we also know that we don't know everything. And so we're very keen to learn from others as well. And we think it's really important that there, there are many islands of excellence on the continent. When you first started Ashesi around 20 years ago, I think there's been an inherent bias in, let's call it the international development business, against higher education. Did you cross some of that bias in the sense that if you have an extra dollar of foreign assistance, the implication has been we need to spend that additional dollar on what's basic education, K through 6, K through 12, and that higher education was seen as sort of a luxury product, or uh, if you gave foreign aid dollars, that that was a subsidy for the elites. What's your response to that? And have you seen a change in attitude in the last 20 years around the role of higher education? I have a view on it myself, but I'd be curious about what your view is. Well, your view is correct that, you know, in the 1990s, when we were embarking on this project, the development community 
was really playing by the playbook of the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs. And the MDGs really focused on enrollment in primary education, universal enrollment. Patrick, we, we call that butts in seats. Butts <laughs> That's <in> right. Seats. <laughs> you know, and so it was really the focus was get kids into schools, right, into primary schools. With the Sustainable Development Goals, which is now sort of the framework that the world is using, things have changed, right? So even with primary education, the focus is not just on enrollment. It is also on quality and making sure that the output of these schools are are strong outputs. Um, And there's also an understanding that lifelong learning is important, that, you know, higher levels of education, secondary education and higher education are also important. So we, we have seen a shift in the world's attention to, to really understand that if, if we really want to develop economies, then we have to completely develop our human resources, um, our human capital, and to do it in a very strong way and not end at just enrollment in primary schools. You know, I think the other thing, Patrick, has changed in 20 years. If you look at, I've seen UN statistics that look at the amount of taxes collected in Africa in the last 20 years has quintupled. That's for a whole series of reasons. One is there's, on the continent of Africa, there's a middle class of well over 100 million people. The amount of formal businesses, the size and the number of formal businesses, meaning uh, businesses operating in the formal economy has grown over time. Some of that would be a, a, a function of government policies. The amount of trade within the African continent and without has increased and their, their, you know, their revenues generated that way. And then oil, gas, and mining revenues. I think of the 54 sub-Saharan African countries, I believe 53 of them, I think is the number, have oil, gas, and mining resources that they're exploiting or going to be exploiting that have been discovered. So all that is to say that there's been an enormous increase in revenues into governments. Now, not all of that is evenly distributed among all 54 sub-Saharan African countries, but in theory, and also I think the thinking has been that societies, there's, you know, there's a, there are a lot more democracies. When you left Ghana for the United States for the first time in the 80s, Ghana was not a democracy. Now Ghana is a very healthy democracy. That there's been increasing democracy. People have their preferences and their views heard. You've had more capable government administrators understanding the importance of education. And so that's all to say that I think many African governments have invested more of their own. They've had more resources and they're investing more of their own resources because they know it's the right thing to do and because their people demand it, African people demand it. And so as a result, there's been more government resources put into basic education so that you have a bigger universe of students who can then access the kinds of human capital development that an organization like Asheshi offers. Is that, are you buying that? Is that is that sort of Dan's view of the last 20 years? Does that sort of comport with what you've experienced? You know, I do, I do think that the fundamentals are improving in Africa. You know, the march of, of democracy across the continent is very positive. You know, African leaders are talking more about development. There's a new Africa free trade agreement. And all of those things are, are positive developments on the continent. We need to really take maximum advantage of all this. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that we develop our human capital incredibly well. 
No, I completely agree. My view is is that we're going to need the Ashesi very badly in Africa, but we're, we also, I think the Ashesi example is such that I'd like to see more universities like Ashesi built because the demographic weight is so enormous and the challenge is so enormous. That is absolutely correct. We need a lot more institutions like Ashesi on the continent. So, Patrick, here in Washington, if I say the Sustainable Development Goals, and I sometimes say this, and, and some people you know, get very upset with me for saying this, but other than about 20 um, U.S. members of Congress and senators, and they're generally all Democrats, and a handful of progressive mayors in progressive cities in the United States, if you ask the fairly intelligent person on the street what are the Sustainable Development Goals, they don't really know what it is. Now, I think if you go to Europe, I think it's different. You get a lot of sophisticated answers and views. And, and it is the exception is the American uh, multinational sector has really taken up the sustainable development goals. How does the sustainable development goals come across your radar screen as president and founder of Ashesi? And how do the sustainable development goals relate to the chapter of your book on courage is the cornerstone of progress? Well, for us, we see the sustainable development goals as a framework that guides interests, the interests of, of nations, large NGOs, foundations, corporations, in what we all ought to collectively focus on in order to achieve a better world. I think that it's a very helpful framework. It makes the conversation easier when we're talking with foundations and development organizations. And one of the things that we also take note of at Ashesi is all the ways that we are sort of factoring the SDGs into our work. Obviously, quality education is an obvious one that we're doing, but we're also doing things like, you know, looking at issues around the environment, issues around equity, you know, gender equality and all of those things and making sure that our institution is making a significant contribution towards the SDG and is being guided by the SDGs. And we think that it's, it's, a, it's a really good framework for all of us, really, to be looking at achieving these goals uh, within the set amount of time. Well, that's great. So, Patrick, I'm very, very grateful that you've taken time to be with us today on this podcast. What you've done with Ashesi is just enormously impressive. You're personally an inspiration to me. And the Ashesi model, I think, is something that has made a tremendous amount of positive change in Africa. I'm very bullish on Africa. And one of the reasons I'm bullish on Africa is because of folks like you that are doing unbelievably important things on the continent. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you very much, Dan. It's really a pleasure. And thanks for your optimism for Africa and the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 